Digital Gonzo, episode 137, recorded 27th of June, 2013, Man of Steel. society had intended what if a child aspired to something greater my son was in the bus he saw what Clark did you're the answer son you're the answer to are we alone in the universe can I just keep pretending I'm your son you are my son. And I have to believe that you were sent here for a reason. And even if it takes the rest of your life, you owe it to yourself to find out what that reason is. How do you find someone who has spent a lifetime covering his tracks? For some, he was a guardian angel. For others, a ghost who never quite fit in. You will give the people of Earth an ideal to strive towards. They will race behind you. They will stumble. They will fall. But in time, they will join you in the sun. In time, you will help them accomplish wonders. Your son is safe. I will find him. My father believed if the world found out who I really was, they'd reject me. He was convinced that the world wasn't ready. What do you think? What's the S stand for? It's not an S. On my world, it means hope. Well, here it's. And ask, how about... Excuse me. Hello and welcome back to the last of the Superman podcasts for the time being. I have plans to do a supplemental series at some point involving, amongst others, the Iron Giant and the Incredibles. But for now, this concludes our Supermanly discussions. Joining me, I have Neil Taylor of Gameburst. Hello. Sharon Shaw of Do Try This at Home. Good evening. And Jerome McIntosh of Gonzo Planet. Good day, sir. In the next few weeks, we will return to Batman with a review of The Dark Knight Returns, the animated movie Double Bill, into which I will be incorporating a discussion about the best Batman graphic novels to try. And after that has everyone in the mood, I will release the long-awaited follow-up to last year's audio drama, Batman Breakdown. It is an adaptation of Alan Moore's The Killing Joke, and serves as a prequel. Later on, I will be closing out the storyline I started with Breakdown with a two-part epic. 
In June 2008, Warner Brothers took pitches from comic book writers, screenwriters and directors on how to successfully restart the Superman film series. Comic book writers Grant Morrison, Mark Wade, Jeff Johns and Brad Meltzer were among those who pitched their ideas for a reboot. I told them it's not that bad. Just treat Superman Returns as the Ang Lee Hulk, Grant Morrison said. The Incredible Hulk has proved that audiences will forgive you and let you redo the franchise, said Wade. Morrison's idea was similar to his work on All-Star Superman. While Wade's was akin to Superman Birthright, Mark Miller, teaming with director Matthew Vaughn, also planned an epic eight-hour Superman trilogy, each installment released a year apart, similar to Lord of the Rings. Miller compared it to the Godfather trilogy, in which it would chronicle the entire life of Superman, from the early days on Krypton to the finale, where Superman loses his powers as the sun starts to supernova. That's a depressing ending. In August 2008, Warner Brothers suggested to reboot the film series. Studio executive Jeff Robinoff planned to have the film released either by 2010 or 2011, explaining Superman Returns didn't quite work as a film in the way we wanted it to. It didn't position the character the way he needed to be positioned. Had Superman worked in 2006, we would have had a movie for Christmas this year or 2009. Now the plan is just to reintroduce Superman without regard to a Batman and Superman movie at all. Paul Levitt stated in an interview that Batman holds the key to the Superman reboot. He elaborated, Everyone is waiting for Nolan to sign up for another Batman. Once that happens, the release date for Superman and all other future projects will follow. In February 2009, McGee, who previously planned to direct Superman Flyby, expressed interest in returning to the Superman franchise. August 2009 saw a court ruling in which Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel's family recaptured 50% of the rights to Superman's origins and Siegel's share of the copyright in Action Comics number 1. In addition, a judge ruled that Warner Brothers did not owe the families additional royalties from previous films. However, if they did not begin production of a Superman film by 2011, then the Siegel estate would have been able to sue for lost revenue on an unproduced film. Now, this is beginning to sound like another film that I can think of right now. It involves superheroes and came out last year. It was a film that had to be made on a deadline. They had to make it, otherwise they'd lose the license. Uh, Ghost Rider? Nah, Amazing Spider-Man. Oh, Spy- oh! They had to make it, which is why it felt yeah. kind of. Huh? Is, was, was that just the first film again? More on Spider-Man later. Okay, so a little bit from Sharon from David Hartrick, and then we will stop and talk about Krypton. Man of Steel. Did I like it? Did I love it? I just don't know. By David Hartrick. I've never had so many questions about a film on so many levels in my life. I just wish there was a medium, particularly a podcast, which dissected the film in a fashion that may be able to satisfy my issues. One with a particularly avuncular host, possibly named Alex or similar, and a cast of knowledgeable characters that now seem familiar to me and up to the challenge of looking at my queries. Hang on. I've never been called avuncular before. <laughs> Does that mean possessing the properties of an uncle? Yes. All right. That's exactly what it means. Listen, before I list my issues, I want you to know something. This isn't an exercise in artful whinging. I didn't hate the film. I actually thought some parts were bordering on sublime. It's just that others were, well, I hate to use the word, but in truth, other parts were ridiculously stupid. 
Bear with me. I hope you will see by the end of this. There is some merit in my issues, but again, this shouldn't prevent anyone from enjoying themselves or disagreeing. It's merely the point of view of someone still hopeful for something definitive who got half of what he wanted. So, some questions and issues in a less than organised fashion. Dear Messrs. Snyder, Nolan and Goya. 1. Is Jarrell one of the greatest scientists Krypton ever produced, capable of creating new hyperdrive technology, a system of navigation far beyond the ideas of man, medically proficient enough to deal with a natural birth and be able to bond the coding of the DNA of Kryptonian life into his sons, and technology savvy enough to make a memory stick turned up to 11 for universal use across all Kryptonian ships, and capable of storing a fragment of his own consciousness? Or... Is he some sort of still-in-shape ex-super-soldier capable of taking out guard after guard, handling weapons with ease and killing without a flicker of emotion, then being able to infiltrate what would be one of the most secure facilities on Krypton comfortably, and finally dealing with no less than a Kryptonian general in hand-to-hand combat for long enough that the ship could be launched? It's just that I have a hard time believing he's both. I really do. It's almost like you needed him to unrealistically be both to serve the plot rather than our sense of realism. Neil, originally, I seem to remember you saying you had a bit of a problem with Russell Crowe before you'd seen the film. So did did, did the film allay your fears? I hate Russell Crowe. God. (laughs) Oi! Except for in this, I really liked him. (laughs) (laughs) I really did. I think it's the scene later on where he's the hologram. I thought that was quite funny if a bit stupid but he kind of has a point about Jarrell in this is he a scientist is he a badass soldier because it's set up that you are they you your your class your job is decided for you and he's a scientist but he goes toe-to-toe with Zod and he doesn't really win but he can hold his own so that's actually kind of a good point it's not something that actually bothered me while watching the film this might come down to casting, because uh, I was like, you yeah, know, okay, right, that doesn't really make sense that uh, scientists would be that badass, but it does make sense that Russell Crowe's that badass. Although it gets taken out pretty much the same way he does in Gladiator. Yeah. Three. Who cast Henry Cavill? I ask because they deserve a sandwich. It was an inspired choice, as a more well-known actor would have been distracting, a less accomplished one not able to pull it off. He is excellent. Not always served well by the script, mind you, but he is a believable Kal-El and Superman. Bravo. Agreed. He's not brimming over with personality and charisma, but neither's Superman. I've never seen him, but he's not Iron Man. He's not Tony Stark. And he's, he's not tormented in the same way Batman is. Also, unlike Brandon Routh, he was playing... Superman and was absorbed in that role rather than playing Christopher Reeve and being absorbed in that role. Do you want to see to me it was what I was talking about before about I've never really seen Kal-El on screen the whole time that's what this finally was. It wasn't Superman that Superman was just the role he was finding himself uncomfortably being uh, foisted into. Hmm. Yes fine point. Although he um, did look a bit Roydy McGoo. Roydy McGoo? <laughs> As in, he was pumped. As in, yeah, he's a bit Roydy. Four. Who cast Kevin Costner? I ask because they also deserve a sandwich. A lesson in understatement and reserved authority. By making us feel like he's not stretching too hard, he has, in fact, stretched himself further in this small role than any other he's taken for years, in my opinion. Agreed. He was lovely. He was fantastic. I'll go with that. 
he was a fantastic choice in casting. I thought that from day one when they announced that he would play in Park End, I thought, yeah, they've got... A, if Kevin Costner actually turns up and, you know, turns on the acting, he will be fantastic. And he was. He was very believable as sort of that down-to-earth man who was dealing with, with something bigger than he knew but still had faith and hope. And it was just really, really good. And heartbreaking. Yeah, I cried a bit. My opinion of Kevin Costner has been somewhat up and down over the years. There were echoes of his performance here. Obviously, it's a significantly smaller role, um, but I would say that there were echoes of... Um, Robin Hood. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to the say Dances with Wolves. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, dear. I was thinking perfect... Is it perfect world? It? Yeah, it is a perfect world. That's the Clint Eastwood one with the kid. Five. Who cast Michael Shannon? I ask because they deserve a tray of sandwiches. He's a wonderful Zod, maniacal, tortured by the loss of his planet, if not some of his people, twisted and driven to the point of obsession. I genuinely believe his portrayal will now go on to inform the comic book Zod as Heath Ledger's version of the Joker has. Again, not his fault, but he does have to deliver some absolute clunkers of lines. It took me a while to warm up to him. It really did. I don't think it was until he, they turned up on Earth and he was a heck of a lot more maniacal and vicious that I was like, actually, yeah, I'm liking this odd now. But it took me some time to warm up to him. See, I um, thought he was Megatron. And then when I read uh, David's words here, I was like, really? He was that good? And I've been thinking it over in my mind and going, wow, at what points was he brilliant? At what points was he in like a really fantastic scenery chewing? Villa? No, didn't like him at all. Never at any point did I think Michael Shannon, whoa, I really wish I could watch more of this guy. I couldn't wait for him to be gone. Mm. I, I, I think by the end of the film, I really liked him. Yeah. And I, I, I prefer, he's now probably my favourite Zod. <laughs> Sorry, Terence. Versus... You've so got many t- other Zods over the years. You've got Terrence Stamp. No, before Zod. Oh, who's the guy who played him in Smallville was actually quite good as well. Oh yeah, actually you did say that. But. I was enjoying that performance because he had a he had a hard job out of all of them because you know you think Zod, you think the Neil before Zod kind of stuff, but this he wasn't going for that. He was going for something different, uh, and I liked it. I think I was focused a bit too much on his plan, which appeared to be find a planet, invade it, kill everyone, and then create new Krypton on their ashes. Brilliant. And can you say that scene where we have the weird mental... Where did that come from? When did... Sorry. Powers they don't have. Uh, Mental power bit. Terminator! What mental power bit? Um, Um, When when he's unconscious and... He's talking to him in his dream. Oh, I thought there was some sort of technological device that allowed you to jump into people's heads. I, I just assumed it was something from the ship. Oh, I thought it was telepathy. Hmm. Oh, I quite liked it, because that was one of the only bits that was actually kind of playing with um, reality. I was um, not at all keen on him throughout the film. I, uh, I didn't really like the whole fight with Jurel at the beginning either. That's an unpopular opinion, I realise that, but... No, not keen on that bit. But the the one point at which I really did accept him as the villain and think that it was working really, really well was the uh, when all of the realisation of what Earth was doing to him came crashing in. Helmet broke and he could see 
as Cal could see and suddenly ah, hear everything all that, If he had changed his character around and he'd actually sort of just sat down in the street and just sort of just wept. Because yes. he just couldn't take it anymore. That would have been a brilliant ending. Exactly. That would and have that's been so good that Superman say. didn't punch him to death. And it was just the fact that he could feel everything that it just overwhelmed him and that the the despair about losing Krypton crept in. That would have been a great ending. But it didn't happen. They just had a big fight. Yeah. For me, I'm with Neil. I I like Michael Shannon as Zod. I I love the fact that he made me hate him more and more as as the story went on. Even Even if I knew his motivations, I didn't Okay, he just made me hate him no matter what, and I actually like that. Um, let's face it, by the end, he just basically snapped. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. He got, there wasn't the, the, the calm planning general there. It was just crazy man. Believe me, I really thought... Pref- the calm planning general? Because he was quite crazy man at the beginning, really. Yeah. I will find him! He sort of feels like he's got a plan at the beginning, but he just seems to just keep notching up the crazy till he hits sort of well, let's face it, he turns it all the way to 11. <laughs> For me, he just seems like a desperate person throughout the whole thing because the only reason he, when he's, when we, he starts out, he, no matter what you say, he's trying to do something about the crisis. He, he has the same mindset as Jorah. We have to do something. We, have, we can't just sit around and wait for the end of our, our extinction. He wants to do something. He gets punished for that. And when he comes, the only reason he gets released from their, their eternal imprisonment is when their, their whole race is extinct. And it makes him desperate just to make, bring Krypton because part of who he is is protecting what Krypton is no matter who gets in his way yeah. it's it's a constant spiral into insanity yeah. the ends must justify the means see that I think was, was what really turned me off him as a character because the whole idea that this is what I'm trying to accomplish and therefore whatever I need to do in order to accomplish that goal is is fine because that's how I'm designed, that's what my uh, intent of being is that goes very very counter to to how I feel about you know how things should be carried out because ultimately the way I see it nobody can ever really see the true end therefore the means is all we have yeah what have you done to me my parents taught me to hone my senses on focus on just what I wanted to see without your helmet you're getting everything. And it hurts. Doesn't it? Oh, one more thing I did like. Uh, the They didn't use kryptonite, but when they used the effect of kryptonite, it actually made some kind of narrative sense and didn't really feel cheap. It was like, it was a carefully planned execution. After all of my Zod rage, <laughs> I, I still really preferred watching him caterwauling and then having a massive Barney with Superman as opposed to friggin' badly implemented Lex Luthor, four films out of five, and a pretend Lex Luthor in the fifth. That's, that's all we got. And Nuclear Man in the fourth. The Kryptonians in two with a sort of, it's so gentle the way that the, the actual combat goes in, in two. It's, it's, it's like they're sort of just, tapping each other. I will admit, I know it was CGI heavy to the point of cartoonishness, but so nice to see a proper super-powered smackdown. Yeah. Yeah. 
Sharon, uh, carry on with David Hartrick's article. Six. We were able to reverse engineer the Phantom Zone technology into a hyperdrive. <laughs> Are you MacGyver? I'm guessing you were hoping this worked better than we got here by magic. You see, as a piece of reverse engineering, this doesn't stack up. For one, this is a prison ship designed to remain static or on a fixed path within the Phantom Zone for retrieval when sentences were served. So there was some fairly major reverse engineering needed to make this thing capable of repeated deep space flight, self-sustainable power-wise, as it's never mentioned if it's solar-powered or uses another element, as there would be no sun in the Phantom Zone. And it would also need a killer navigation system to map the universe accurately and not drop the ship from hyperdrive into the middle of an asteroid field, something as a prison ship that probably hadn't been included. If we're to believe these things had been scavenged, that's a stretch at best, and if more suitable scout ships were buried at these outposts with such equipment, like the one on Earth, why not just take that? Also, and this is an ex-mechanic talking, I once made a headlight bracket out of a metal ruler and awarded myself the day off if I'd reverse-engineered technology designed to pull you to a shadow dimension into a hyperdrive capable of taking you vast distances over the entire universe, I might very well never work again. It's true, we can patent it. (laughs) But you're sane. (laughs) Seven. The line, welcome to the planet, Mr. Kent, at the end, was genius. It may have come from Lois, but in reality it was spoken by everyone who has ever read and enjoyed Superman stories on any level. It was a punch-the-air moment for me, and interestingly, this was because I had waited for Clark Kent to finally show up, having seen so much, possibly too much in truth, of Kal-El. It made me want the sequel immediately for more of this, and it's worth noting that the best version of The Incredible Hulk was in The Avengers, because they started with the best banner. Please take note when writing the next one that a great Superman story starts with a compelling Clark Kent. 8. Having protected her son's identity all her life and watched her husband die for that very reason, Lois Lane arrives on Martha Kent's doorstep and we get no sense of being sent away with a flea in her ear. No idea that Mark Kent might have, you know, told this complete stranger to get the hell off her porch and stop asking questions about her son and her son's capabilities, the ones her and her husband spent their lifetimes keeping secret. We get a cut to Jonathan Kent's headstone, almost with the sense that she was sent there by Martha. Has the scene been cut? I hope so, or it just feels like no one quite knew what to do here. Speaking of which... 9. Lois Lane follows a fairly simple trail back to finding out Superman's identity. Too simple. Like, ridiculously simple. Like, she just checks out some incidents on the internet and then talks to the people, getting a few details off them. This means either we have to believe there was more to it, and Lois Lane is actually a Batman-level detective off-screen, or Cal was truly awful at covering his tracks properly, despite his father's lifetime of warning not to be truly awful at that very thing. If he was that bad, just a thought, but surely someone else would have been interested in a man who could take a logging lorry and impale it ten feet in the air with its cargo, as if there's no natural way that could happen. I don't know what to say about that. (laughs) Kind of got a point on the Lois Lane thing, because I think that was kind of set up to be show her that she's a really good journalist, she can follow the clues wherever they lead. But it probably needed a little bit more than that. It's hard to do, because they had... I mean, it's a long film anyway, so they had to fit in a lot, but I think they probably could have, should have, or should have fleshed that part out more. Because I think that was just trying to get across the whole, she's a really good journalist. Mm. Other than yeah. saying, hey, I won a Pulitzer Prize, and da 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 It's like, no, show us. <laughs> show us actually her working this stuff out. Show us that she is this intelligent character. I was pleasantly surprised that there was no bumbling Clark Kent. The idea that he'd been this recluse uh, hiding who he was and uh, it was wonderfully symbolic of what he does as Clark but it wasn't bumbling at all it was sad mm. just to see him so isolated and, and that's something they've never done in Superman and, and uh, I was really really appreciative of that so I think um, my 
bullshit detector didn't go off anywhere near as loud when uh, Lois retconned that and traced it backwards. Well, to be fair, we don't get Clark Kent in this film. Yeah. He's nowhere near this film. I, I was a teeny tiny bit disappointed at the end when it was like, Clark Kent, oh, okay, so I guess he's going to be... Yeah, but at least they did it in a way that's, you know... There's a reason why you don't go with the reason. How does Lois not know? She knows. She's helping him. But as much as I don't like the bumbling Clark Kent, he does have to be close to people. He does have to be doing something where he can just not be Superman just for a bit and just be someone else. So whether they change that around for the next movie or, or, yeah. I'm with you. I don't want to see a bumbling Clark Kent. Clark Kent can be a capable character in his own right and doing, he can do the stuff that Superman can't do. Knowing that Lois knows who he is, that changes things as well because it's just annoying to watch her patronize the hell out of him. Yeah. It's a good idea. enough of that. Cheers. And also when you set her up as being an intelligent and, you know, well-researched, journalist to then have to accept that she doesn't recognize him and but he's also will. surrounded by other you know smart journalists and like you think jenny olsen oh that pissed off a few people you think jenny olsen's not gonna work it out i did like uh, uh morpheus's perry white actually the um uh, yeah yeah they, they, they nailed the integrity side of him that was the point. I was never one of these people who were like, oh, they've, they've cast a black man as Perry White. like, I don't care. They've cast a really bloody good actor. By casting Lawrence Fishburne and by him playing it the way he did, it meant that they could make that character step away from uh, J. Jonah Jameson. True. Yeah. 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 Which they, they would otherwise have been in great danger of. Amy Adams as Lois Lane. Almost unrecognisable relative to most of the other roles I've seen her play, where she's basically some variation on Giselle from uh, Enchanted. I like the fact that she was understatedly tenacious. That was mm. a nice uh, way of painting her. That I, I got more of a feel for, for Lois, and she wasn't just obnoxious like Lois tends to be. Or in Superman Returns, she was swallowed up by all of her mummy issues and Superman crush. Mm. There wasn't much left besides that. She but, did, um, she was a little reminiscent of the, uh, animated series Superman, mm. um, Lois Lane, particularly at the very beginning when she goes to the, um, Arctic camp and was basically insisting on being allowed to do her job. Yeah. Yeah. She is quite browsy, but not tedious with it. Time for a few points raised by the community, and we're going to get Neil and Jerome to read these ones out. So, uh, Neil, if you can start with Ethan Hunsaker. Okay, Ethan Royal. I'm not sure how long the ending scene takes place after the main events of Man of Steel, but I found it rather odd that hundreds of thousands of lives have just been lost in a in an apocalyptic cataclysm brought about <laughs> by groups of aliens, and the one guy in the office still has tickets to some game. 
Life carries on after an entire civilization's worldview gets rocked to the tune of thousands upon thousands of civilians. You might already be covering that, but I found that a bit strange. It felt very much a sweep under the rug. Everything immediately goes back to how things were. It's like... And they all went home for tea. Yeah, it, it's, it literally feels like people have like wiped it out of their minds. Oh, yeah, it happened, but it, we're okay now. I mean, what I like in The Avengers is like the ending of that film is people are worried about uh, what's happened. They have positive and negative views, and it's all about people talking about that. In this, we jump straight ahead to the buildings are fine, everything's back to normal, and Clark has a new job. I was kind of fine with it because the simple fact it's only really sort of the planet you see, the planet building. I kind of get the feeling that might is probably going to be something they touch on in the second film because the way I think they're setting this up is to sort of be the beginning of the heroic age where I can't remember which continuity it is because, hey, there's so many. But Superman was meant to be the first hero and then it was followed by Batman and Wonder Woman and the rest. So I think that's probably the vibe they're going for. So I didn't find it that strange. But you could also just put it down to sort of typical comic book, uh, you know, Hollywood comic book movie syndrome. Whereas that happens a lot. You know, this fantastical thing happens and then we never speak of it again. Sharon, so, you did have a problem, but it wasn't, it wasn't about the rest of the world's, uh, uh, immediate relief and react, you know, non-reaction to the terrible events. It was actually Superman himself. That's right. Yeah. I was going to say it, the, uh, the fact that he has this moment of breaking because yeah. he, he wants to do good. He wants to save life. And in order to do so, he has had to take life. And you see in the course of the fight, most of which I found very, very boring. But the very end of it, I thought I, I was fully absorbed in it because you could see the battle on his face, in his body language, everything, how much he hated being cornered into doing what he was doing. But he had to. He had no choice because other people's lives were at risk. And I, that was the bit for me that really had me in floods of tears. And I... I wanted desperately to see how he would then reconcile that with going forward and being Superman. And what happened was <gasps> nothing. He trashed a drone. Yeah. And then shoes up. And a, then uh, turned up in a field and, and um, you know, talked to a cop and, and, and the girl goes, told him he was hot. hot. Oh my god. Uh, you got pissed off at that bit. Yeah. Oh, that was grown moment. Well, I, I thought, you know... <sighs> It just doesn't seem like something that a highly trained military captain would say to her boss, even if this is the same highly trained military captain who's had to have... What, what was it they had to explain to her? Or she, oh, yeah, she goes the, the EMP, EMP or something. No, 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 yeah. it wasn't EMP, but it was it something. Was a, like a black hole? Do you know what? Oh, terraforming? What's that was terraforming? It. Terraforming. You don't know what I fucking terraforming is? That, I don't know what terraforming was since Red Dwarf. You see, I'm not sure how... Because uh, we're geeks, geeks, I'm not stuff. sure how far into the popular consciousness terraforming, terraforming is. actually is. Yeah, you know what? The geek shall inherit the earth. We know shit. And more to the point, we shall terraform it. <laughs> <laughs> this one's from Daniel Floyd.
One of the most visually impressive superhero films I've seen really raises the bar. Shame about all the story problems. The structure felt incredibly disjointed to me, as if the film was jumping from scene to scene and skipping important information as it went. Some of the cuts from scene to scene felt incredibly jarring, as if whole scenes had been skipped over. Lois's role feels superfluous and unnecessary to the story as presented too, and some of the sequences presented from her perspective only serve to make Clark appear more alien and mysterious, which is a big problem. By the end of the film, I still don't feel like I have a clear understanding of who Clark is, what he wants, or what motivates his decisions. He's meant to be our surrogate character, the one whose perspective the audience shares, and the lens through which we see the world. But the film never really fully succeeds in making that connection. I never feel that I know what's going through his head, or can contextualise what's happening in a scene filtered through his perspective. What is his goal? What motivates him to be Earth's protector? Is he a protector at all? Because we don't really see him do much protecting, especially once he's taken the cape. Seeing him desperate to save four people from Zod at the end rings incredibly hollow after a massive battle that looks like it probably killed thousands, during which he never seems to pay much mind to the destruction happening around him. He seems really torn up about having to kill Zod at the end, but I can't remember it being established why he would be so upset about it. I can make guesses... But if I'm still having to try to guess why the main character is doing the things he does at the end of the movie, that's a problem. When the stakes are clear and you completely understand what your characters want and what drives them, as in The Dark Knight, that's where the drama comes from. This will vary from person to person, but I think that it was the flashback to Pa Kent's death that completely severed my connection to Clark. It's like watching an idiot teenager make stupid choices in a horror film. There may be rational arguments for why he went along with Parkent's order to stay behind to protect his identity while his father ran into certain death, but I can't fathom the kind of person who would make that decision, not as it is presented in the film. By the end of that scene, all I feel is, man, I don't get you at all, Clark. <laughs> it made me cry. Yeah. It did. It really did. It brought a tear to my eye. I really liked it. I think this is probably the, in the best way that it's been shown um, because it still keeps the whole point of him being sort of powerless in. Now, the heart attack that's usually responsible for Jonathan Kent's death is it, meant to be, despite all these superpowers, being you know being this superhuman being, you can't stop that. Whereas this, it was the, it's like no, you can't. The, you know, it's 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 all the lessons that's been taught to him. And it's like no, you can't. You guys, uh, do, do, do you feel that uh, Clark would have just gone, I'll bugger it, I don't care about being secret anymore. I mean, this is my choice. Especially he, since he'd just argued with him over that very thing. If he'd been older or younger at that point, then I think, yes, he would. Um, if you look at the way he behaves as a, a younger teenager and a child, he he does act without thought or concern for, you know, public perception and not necessarily um, without thought or concern okay but he he lets the no he lets he prioritizes doing good and he doesn't just let a bunch of children in a bus drown yeah and when he when he talks to his father about it what am i supposed to do let him drown the idea is unconscionable to him exactly one thing that the scene did say to me um it outlined quite well the idea that when you're a teenager, you are very uncertain about what you're supposed to do in certain circumstances. Your socialization is really coming to a head at that age. You desperately don't want to do anything that's going to make you stand out too much. Um, but you know that, that there's also all of this stuff that you're supposed to be able to work out what's the right thing to do. And it's not always that easy. Um, he's torn between 
still allowing himself to be guided and directed by the father that he's trusted his whole life and making decisions for himself and, and working out the things that he, he really wants to do. And of all of the, the massive things that he ever accomplishes in his life, you can probably guarantee that this is the one thing that he would want to do, save his father, his own you know, he's, it, that's a personal connection for him that he's going to have to let go of. And that's kind of foreshadowing the idea that when he becomes Superman, he's got to be there for the human race as a whole. He can't focus on individuals because if he does, that's going to impact on how he is perceived as a superhero. If he's, you know, doing things for himself, because that's the way that it would be seen, you know, he, he takes that risk. You're right. That's never been portrayed in the films before. The uh, the closest uh, uh, it gets is at the end of the first Superman. He prioritizes saving the people before saving Lois, who it would have been for himself. And when that happens and she dies, he can't cope. So he goes back and undoes it. Yeah, which is is a bullshit ending. Yeah, and uh, it's, it is a touching scene because of the argument they had in the car leading up to this scene where it's, it is the typical teenager, you're not my dad kind of thing. Yet he wants to go back to save him because it's his dad and because he loves him and he doesn't want to lose him. Yeah, it also helps hammer home the reason why he spent all these years in hiding that he would, it was very much uh, one of the reason he was honoring the wishes of his father, the fact that his father felt so strongly that he should hide himself, that he gave his life knowing that his son could at any moment rush over and save him but he felt that strongly that the world wasn't ready for him that he actually he was willing to die for that and he's carried that with him this the whole time up all the way up into his 30s it reinforces um if if we're calling him clark at this point as well because in in that particular context that's who he is Um, it reinforces his humanity as well because again he's having to make these decisions that although they're on a large scale they're conflicts that a a teenager a human teenager can recognize you know the, the being torn between doing the right thing and doing as you're told um and doing the thing that you desperately desperately want to do um but then you've also got the idea that this is now two fathers who have essentially sacrificed themselves for him mm. um which i would imagine it later in life will reinforce his the things he wants to do to help people and to sacrifice essentially himself and his individuality for the sake of the entire human race, which is not even his people. The world's too big, Mom. Then make it small. Focus on my voice. Pretend it's an island. Out in the ocean. Can you see it? I see it. My son was in the bus. He saw what Clark did. You have to keep this side of yourself a secret. What was I supposed to do? Just let him die? Maybe. 
have so many questions. Where do I come from? You just have to decide what kind of man you want to grow up to be, Clark. Whoever that man is, he's going to change the world. This is from Akila Edwards. For anyone who has never touched on the Donner movies, it's fresh and a better take on Superman and his origins. For those of us who know the Donner movies, the Boy Scouts is getting retconned. A lot. Some will hate it, some, like myself, will love it. Others will be ambivalent, but better get used to it. This is Superman from now on. It, it, it made money. That is what seals the deal, really. See, I, I'm, I'm with Akila. I liked it. I liked it too, but I'm uh, I'm aware of its faults and its strong points. It's it's a weird one for me this because mm. uh, I can like when people are sort of giving it flack, I'm like, yeah, you got a point. When people are gushing about it, I'm like, yeah, you got a point. Often over the same scene. Yeah, no, I'm I'm totally with you on that one. Strangely enough, it is one of those where I liked it. I can admit it has some serious flaws in places, but there's things that I really did enjoy. And on the whole, it was a lot better than I was expecting it to be. So, uh, Sharon, do you want to read J.C. Hedges? I liked the movie a lot, even though there was more Christopher Nolan in the movie than I would have liked. What? Sorry, what? (laughs) One thing that still is bugging me is why was Cal's costume on a 20,000-year-old abandoned scouting ship? Did AI jaw whip it up really quick or what? I'm willing to believe the Kryptonians had that kind of technology, but still. Has a point. (laughs) He has a point on that one. Also, even adorned with the S symbol. Yeah. Also, kind of with him on the Christopher Nolan point as well. I think there's too much Christopher Nolan? Mm. What? No. What are you talking about? Not too much Christopher Nolan. You Would have been have good have to see more Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan. Less, more less characterization, stronger. more discussion, more conversation, slightly less hitting people with buildings. No, no, this is the important point. Then you wouldn't have Superman. Even Yeah, no, hang on, you're right, Neil. Even though we think that's crazy, you need to be able to verbalise this, because I this is, it's like, it's Kryptonian to me. I, I do not understand this. Okay, the, okay, what is the issue, what is the problem with having too much Christopher Nolan in this film? Christopher Nolan has a habit of telling Christopher Nolan's story and just perhaps using the characters that he's given but telling a Christopher Nolan story. Mm. Now, I admit that he's going to be fantastic for those dialogue-driven scenes, that's what it needed. But you have to balance those out with the fact that you are telling a Superman story mm. or a Batman story. <laughs> you still hate it, right? Yep. 
I will see. <laughs> last time I watched it was when we saw it at Gplex. Oh, dude. I, like I said, I've, I watched it a couple of weeks ago. In fact, just before I saw this film. And in fact, Bane was so good, that's probably what coloured my view on uh, Gem Wars Odd. Hmm. That's it. You know, Imagine a Christopher that. Nolan's Lobo. <laughs> Does not compute. I, I don't think that those two things don't go together. Matt Wetter hates Man of Steel. Here are multiple reasons why. Number five, the constant out-of-focus shots and extreme close-ups, a.k.a. how to give me a headache. Did you watch it in 3D, Matt? No. <laughs> I bet he did. But I watched this in 2D, and even then it was like, it's just this modern thing they have of shaky cam, shaky cam, close up, shaky cam, shaky cam. I, I really like the shaky cam. I can't, <laughs> can't get enough of it. Stand the shaky cam. It's not standard for. Um, it's not Christopher Nolan style. He has very carefully framed shots. I gotta be honest. I'm not the biggest fan of shaky cam, but I did really mind it in this. <laughs> Because it was mainly used for, like, headaches and whatnot, so I could understand. Well, shaky cam with Superman um, is is unusual. Someone's breathing like a rapist. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I think that might have been me. It was you, Drew, because you're the one that's all oh, guilty yeah. of it. Shaky cam with Superman. <laughs> shaky cam... Shaky cam with Superman is kind of like airfare footage. You're sort of like, oh god, something terrible is going to happen. So I suppose it kind of it ramps up the tension. Maybe it I makes you feel like more like you're there. No, nope. no, it detracts like one note for me. It's just like hold the camera steady. Let me get a sense of perspective and scale. Shaking every two seconds, not helping. I just hate it when there's a decent action, action scene and they decide to shake the camera switch shots every five seconds even instead of just you know focusing on the two people yeah the ADD way of filmmaking mm. uh, number six I really disagree with the constant flashbacks and exposition get on with it yes get on with it yeah! oh, I'm enjoying this scene get on with it um, Get on with it. I disagree with that. I think they should just have done it in a linear fashion. It would have been more like the uh, Donna Superman. Uh, but the, the stuff he's talking about, the flashbacks, all of the stuff when he was a kid, that was the best stuff. That was the tasty, nourishing stuff amidst all the, the sea of candy. And to be fair, something we haven't spoken on in those flashbacks, the, 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 the child actor and sort of the teen actor... Mm. really good jobs yes yeah yeah especially i think considering when you think about it they give the, the child actor probably one of the hardest scenes to do in the entire film yeah. Yeah. where he loses it because of his sort of powers coming in the the whole freak out to to being able to hear everything to see through things and and actually seeing it from his point of view how terrifying that must actually be i'm assuming he watched daredevil for inspiration for a very very similar scene it's been a while since I watched Daredevil. It's not bad. I watched it again recently. It's rubbish but compared with things like The Dark Knight, but it's it's not terrible. Now, number seven, I kind of agree with. I understand why they did it, but I wish they hadn't. Number seven, the washed-out colours and the lack of humour. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there should have been, should have been Batman and Robin, but even The Dark Knight had more colour and humour than this film. It felt very, very joyless. Right. They should have had one character that made you laugh like Alfred did. 
Yeah, I, I, yeah, I can see that. I think they tried it on the occasions like the I think he's hot or the the yeah. sort of weird yeah, slime ball guy. Not funny. Jimmy is was, supposed think... to be your humor character. Jimmy's the funny one in Superman Returns, but the washed out colors it really it didn't have those primary colors that Superman is supposed to have. And I understand why they did it. They were trying to do it for real, and they were trying to do it also to try and make it seem like an alien world that Clark was stuck on. But it did sort of end up feeling a bit bleached and and like uh, like you were. It was almost like watching insomnia sometimes. Mm. See, I uh, actually found humor in the film. I found humor in the 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 scene where he's having to steal the clothes and stuff. Or uh, when they they do a much better take on the whole beating uh, up a redneck. The, I was going to say the I was going to say asshole trucker. Yeah, where the guy in the bar just you know is an absolute douche, and the way Clark gets his own back, I was like. Yeah, because you know what? You would do that. The whole humour thing ties back into the reason why I don't like the ending. It's, it's like well, ending. the majority of the ending is the fact that all this heavy, serious stuff just happened. And how do they, they start, they decide, okay, let's hit with some jokes at the end so people don't leave too depressed. And they just feel very forced in and out of tone. The music. John Williams' Superman theme, like Guile's theme, makes everything better. You don't want to use it in your new film? Absolutely fine, but at least replace it with something equally rousing or memorable, because I guarantee a lot of normal people will be disappointed that they didn't hear it. Right. I say again, I love the new Superman theme. It's just that there was nothing else. Um, At least, you know, the the original Superman film, until they got to fucking New York and when it started going... What was it? Oh, that's Gilderoy Lockhart. How does it go? Did it? No, that's Jar Jar Binks. You can't say this is a great and memorable theme and then proceed to not remember it. No, I'm saying that it's great up until this point. The fact that I've forgotten it is is why it's shit. How does it go? No, that's the Ewoks! I wondered when watching the film... I think Jerome might be able to help me out on this one. At the end of Smallville, ten years, they use the theme right at the end, don't they? I never watched Smallville. Oh, you lucky person. I think they... Yeah. I, I, I might be misremembering it, but ten years... I, no, I think they do, get, yes. Yeah, they do. They only use it right then, and I wondered if they were going to do that, and they didn't, so... Well, technically, it is the John Williams one, because if you listen very carefully during the... They will race behind you. They will stumble. They will fall. That's the Krypton theme. He is using John Williams' music. He's just disguised it. It sounds synthy and almost like Blade Runner at times. And a little bit Mass Effect, too. I love that piece of music.
Laundromat, The Dark Knight got away with it because the new soundtrack is arguably as equally memorable as the old one. Now, the Dark Knight music, especially the first two, is flipping fantastic. If you're talking about the Danny Elfman one, that has got a wonderful theme tune. Na, 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 that if you play Lego Batman after 10 minutes, you go, you know what? I am so sick of this fucking theme. Funny I little kill thing. Danny Elfman. That's exactly what I did. I think that the game. It's like, I am so sick of it. Na, 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 na. Even Lyra got sick of it. Even if you start watching concurrent episodes of the animated series, it gets on your wick. At least the Harry Potter and Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, you got a big array of music to go from. But they only went for the first Batman film. And so, and that's really limited in its own soundtrack for Lego Batman. So it's appalling to listen to. But still, it's, it's still better than. Was that the worst music in Batman Forever? That was the best music in Batman Forever. I think it's possible in the next film they could he could weave it in in a different way, in a different tempo, that just like a sound sort of but in with different instruments so that you don't know until you've heard it that you're listening to the Superman theme. Just without the brass, without the bum 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 bum. So this is Matt from the Shiznit.co.uk, the ten dumbest things about Man of Steel. Uh, let's jump to number five. There's only one way this ends, Cal. Either you die or I do. Already the leading contender for our inevitable Worst Lines of 2013 feature at the end of the year due to the fact that writer David Goya is apparently shit at maths. I do kind of like that. It's kind of true. Yeah. This ends one of two ways. Either you yeah. die or I do. That's all he needed to say. Maybe Zod by this point had a concussion and just couldn't count. What are you doing, Zod? This is mad. What I should have done years ago. These lawmakers, with their endless debates, have let Krypton to ruin. And if your forces prevail, you'll be the leader of nothing. Then join me. Help me save our race. We'll start anew. We'll sever the degenerative bloodlines that led us to this state. And who will decide which bloodline survives on? You? Don't do this, Hell. The last thing I want is for us to be enemies. You have abandoned the principles that bound us together. You've taken up the sword against your own people. I will honor the man you once were, Zod. Not this monster you've become. Okay. Um, Sharon, do you want to carry on with David Hartrick's article? Uh, right. 14. Just a quick one, but thank God they put Lois in a room with a port for Superman's memory stick turned up to 11 that linked directly back to the ship's mainframe. Also, thank God Kal-El knew that would happen and gave her the memory stick turned up to 11 in the first place. He must have read a few pages on the script as there was no other reason to suspect the weakest person on the ship would be able to work out that it was a memory stick turned up to 11. No, but to be fair, she's been pointed out as being quite a good journalist. Being weak doesn't make her stupid. True. Let's be honest, they view her as an ant and they're not really going to bother too much about an ant. Yeah. Ant. Boots. Boots. <laughs> <laughs> Never know if Supreme Power wants a magazine or something. <laughs> 
God, the Avengers is so much better than this film. It really is. And much more quotable. Yeah. That it would go in the hole in her room without any bother, that she was capable of making her way to safety through a populace of dangerous and bloodthirsty aliens guided by Obi-Wan Jarrell, and that everything would be okay for him to escape from there. <laughs> it did seem a bit like Obi-Wan. <laughs> Just a little bit. Also, I assume they put her in a room with such an access point to the ship's mainframe as there were no cells on board. I mean, it's not like this was a reverse-engineered prison ship or anything, so why would there be cells? That's a fair point. Um, yeah. The prison that is makes, the void zone. Yeah, the prison yet. is like a, another dimension. They were basically, they just... They were entombed in the giant shapes. penis things. Yeah. It's like Detroit in there. Nobody knew what those holes were for in the ship. Really? I don't buy that. It's a Kryptonian ship. They probably knew. Oh, that's what they know what a USB port looks like. (laughs) Years from now, we will be using Crystal 3.0. Jorel created the USB port. 15. Got the Batman reference. Was that the Brother Eye satellite he nerdishly wondered aloud? Got the Lexicor Uh, tanker. I believe you have to say it like this. Uh, Was that the Brother Eye satellite he nerdishly wondered aloud? And to quote Daniel Bryant, no, 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 because you know this, David, that he created Brother Eye. I'm going to stop. (laughs) <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. I, I, I averted nerd nerd rage there, so... Got the LexCore tanker, got the potential Krypton survivor in that empty pod in the scout ship, so maybe Supergirl to push, got the potential link to Cyborg via Dr. Hamilton's work for Star. What else did I miss? If that was it, and they knew the Easter egg trail Marvel left in its films to build expectation to breaking point for the Avengers, they missed a massive trick here. Now, I could go on, but I won't. I've only seen this once, and I'm genuinely looking forward to seeing it again. Like I said, I enjoyed it, but there were moments of utter ridiculousness that I'm struggling to get past. No matter, though, as there is another reason I'm willing to forgive a lot in this instance, and it's something that has a further resonance for what happens next in the world of DC movies. This is an origin story, and they are horribly difficult to judge. We are a cinema-savvy audience now. The thrill of seeing Spider-Man's birth in 2002 is gone, as we've had a decade to witness Iron Man's first flight, Thor's first trip to Earth, Batman's beginning and rise, the Avengers together on screen, and more. For this reason alone, I will punch a child and set fire to something beautiful if they tell Batman's origin again in the reboot, whatever shape that may take. This film had to get certain things out of the way. Krypton, Jarrell, the suit, Lois and more. And despite the absurd nature of some of the things that happen and the stupid facepalm decisions in other areas, it gets them out of the way in a manner that zips by, doesn't make you hate paying £4 for a tub of popcorn and, crucially, leaves you wanting more. The sequel's the one. This was the film they had to get out of the way to start telling the real story. The next one is the make or break in truth. When I wrote for the Superman Returns pod about the lack of a great representation of Superman, I knew it wouldn't be in this, as you have to run through the cliches to get to the good stuff. This is a film which soars and plummets at the same time. It's not for me as a completist or for the hardcore Superman fan who expected a little more joy rather than endless dark. It's for something broader, a cinema audience, and I'm totally okay with that. This is where a DC phase begins. Is it as good as Iron Man was? No. But does that make it bad? No. There's a lot to enjoy, and that's enough for the minute. For all its faults and missteps, there is one clear feeling I came away with. Show me more. And if nothing else, that must be testament to the potential they have opened up ahead. You let them handcuff you? Wouldn't be much for surrender if I resisted. And if it makes them feel more secure, then... What's the S stand for? It's not an S. On my world, it means hope. Well... Here, it's an S. How about... Ah, sure. Right, let's have enough of nitpicking and hear why I love Man of Steel by Jake Del Toro. 
I'm a massive Superman fan, yet sometimes I feel like a fraud by saying this. I feel like a fraud because I've never read the comics or seen any of the animated shows, although I should say that seeing Man of Steel has inspired me to finally go and read the comics. My only experience of Superman is through his four big screen adventures and the... Five! And the Smallville TV series. As we are talking of Superman on the big screen, I shall be ignoring almost entirely Smallville from here on in. Please do. <laughs> Just do. Do not watch it. I often forget it exists. You My sure? relationship with the Man of Steel began at age eight. It's a slightly long-winded story, so please bear with me. I used to spend occasional Friday nights at my uncle's house and we would eat pizzas and watch films. The thing is, we wouldn't watch VHS copies or movies on television. He projected them. My uncle is a massive film nut. He has literally thousands of celluloid films. And when I visited, he used to draw the curtains, pull down the seemingly huge screen, and we would watch the films with the projector running just behind us. It was like being in a cinema that had been made just for me. It was magical. Superman the movie was the first film he showed me, and the experience made a lasting impression. I really believed a man could fly. More importantly, I believed I could fly. The feeling I had after the credits rolled is one that will stay with me for always. I felt ten feet tall. To say I was excited about the release of Man of Steel is an understatement. I had avoided practically everything in the run-up in a successful attempt to avoid spoilers. The only things I saw were the cast and two trailers. Now, it's not a perfect film by any means, but I absolutely adored it. From the moment the film started, I was completely gripped. It was great to see more depth in the opening on Krypton. This gives a much better sense of where Kal-El is from, and it also lends more weight to the role of Jurel, although it is only really a fleeting glimpse. We get at least some sense of what he is trying to preserve, which I felt was missing from Superman the movie. It would have been easy for an Origins film to get bogged down with Clark's formative years, but Man of Steel never does. The second act of the film, which follows an older Clark trying to come to terms with the death of his adopted father and discover who he really is, is the film's highest point for me. We get a real sense that he is at an important stage of his life and is on the verge of becoming who he is destined to be. The use of flashback to show the key moments of Clark's childhood is very effective. We get to see enough of how he has been raised by Jonathan and Martha to appreciate how he has matured and get a real sense of the values that have been instilled in him. The only problem with this section is that it felt like some bits were a little rushed, allowing a little more time to linger on the key scenes would have perhaps added a little more weight to certain parts. What I didn't expect is to be moved to tears. The performance of the young actors playing Clark, along with Kevin Costner and Diane Lane, are fantastic. Hearing Clark ask of Jonathan, can I just keep pretending to be your son, is moving and had me misting up a little. What is heartbreaking, though, is seeing a young boy suddenly beset with powers that allow him to experience too much all at once for his young mind to cope with, and then exclaiming that the world is too big. I found this scene in particular to be powerful and very moving. The villain is also fantastic. Michael Shannon seems born to play this type of role, and he excels as Zod. He is an interesting character bred to be a military leader and driven by the will to create a new Krypton, and will not let anything get in his way. His motivation acts as a great catalyst in Clark's decision as to the man he is to become. He is forced to make a decision that will define who he is, and for me, this is what Man of Steel is all about. Jonathan Kent sets this up earlier in the film. You're not just anyone. One day you're going to have to make a choice. You will have to decide what kind of man you want to grow up to be. Whatever that man is, good character or bad, is going to change the world. I had two small problems with the film. Not enough to take me out of the experience, but big enough for me to notice. The first is Lois Lane. 
I can't fault the way she's played. In fact, I think Amy Adams is pretty fantastic. The problem is that she didn't feel like Lois Lane to me. She felt a bit like she'd been named Lois Lane after the script had been finished because they realised they wanted Lois and she wasn't in it, if that makes sense. I felt like she was a little underwritten, I suppose, and as such, I didn't quite buy into the romance. But this is a minor quibble. My second problem was the amount of sustained action in the final act. I was never bored by it, as some people say that they have been, uh, but I wish there were a few moments to allow the film, and more importantly the audience, to breathe. In some ways it reminded me of Quantum of Solace, in that the action is so frenetic that it was hard to keep up with in certain parts. Although again, it's only a minor criticism. What I really enjoyed the film is that it's not about Superman or Clark Kent. This is all about Kal-El. We are getting a glimpse at his life just as he's reaching a moment where he will stand out in front of the world and reveal who he really is. It is the moment that will define not only who he sees himself as, but also how the rest of the world will see him. I could waffle on aimlessly and endlessly about parts of the film I loved and why I liked them, but ultimately the constituent parts were almost irrelevant. What I mean by that is that when the lights came back up, I was walking out of the cinema. I wasn't thinking about the film. I was thinking about my uncle's darkened living room and the projector spinning away behind us. In the best possible way, I felt eight years old again and left the auditorium with a huge grin on my face. I felt ten feet tall. Thank you, Jake Del Toro. That was lovely. You know what? Let me do my essay and we'll get out of here. This was a remake of the first two Superman films, with all the crap cut out and a bit of crap thrown in to replace it. As such, every key moment was paid homage to or replicated, but there was an awful lot of stuff that was paying homage to the works of auteurs like Michael Bay and McGee. Clangorous steel coming into thunderous contact with shattering concrete. Much like Zack Snyder's take on Watchmen, I suspected that over time, the parts that annoy and bore me will do so in greater amounts, and the parts that I enjoy and am thrilled by will get even better. Both films, Man of Steel and Watchmen, are colossal cinematic yin-yangs. Let's start with the worst aspects and work upwards. It's scattered with bombastic action in small doses that would be perfectly compelling. It's necessary, in fact, for a superhero to show what he can do. However, that now infamous final third goes way too long and becomes a trifle boring and samey. On repeat viewings, where the outcome is never in doubt, this is going to be a chore. I don't know if any of you guys noticed, but one of the executive producers on this film was John Peters. The very same John Peters who Kevin Smith talked about. The crazy ex-hairdresser holed (laughs) up in Wayne Manor who believed he and Kevin were from the streets. That Superman should never fly or wear that, and this is his words, not mine, faggy costume. And that at one point it was absolutely essential that this street-tough, jeans-wearing strongman who doesn't fly fight a giant spider. Well, John, you finally got your wish. The World Smasher, or whatever the fuck it was, resembled what every eight-year-old boy will call a giant, many-limbed force of destruction, or one of the deadliest killers in the animal kingdom, a big metal spider. Straight out of Wild Wild West, this was the lowest point for me, because there was no clash of ideologies, no dramatic thrust, and this was an overly long scenario, complete with its... Soundtrack. It's just pointless busy work for Superman before the final boss. There were so many more interesting things he could have been doing. 
the focus should have been on him preventing the deaths of people we could see, who crucially could see him, rather than destroying some doomsday device way out there in a CGI no-man's land. This moment was about the planet observing his actions for the first time, and needed to serve as an analogue for both the process of damage limitation from the man-made earthquake at the end of the first film, and that montage of Christopher Reeve apprehending criminals and saving Air Force One. This film is about him becoming a hero. Show the people that, not just the audience. We're watching them too. In order to process what we're seeing and with the benefit of a modern perspective, maybe not everyone's happy he's here. Maybe some people are still absolutely terrified of him, even if after he saves them. People are not all the same, and we deal with huge events in a wide variety of ways. Show us that. Not the robot spider. Eagle-eyed punters will also have noticed, at one point, a polar bear. Though it wasn't fighting Brainiac. Yet. There was also quite a shocking eagerness to knock down skyscrapers. This action, as we all know, is guaranteed to get you box office success. We're currently in a period where at least once per summer there is a blockbuster which apes the building-smashing 2007's Transformers. Transformers didn't do anything new here. It was just following in the footsteps of Independence Day, which in turn was emulating films like 1974's Earthquake. We are fascinated with seeing our cities destroyed on film. It allows us to experience our worst nightmares from the safety of the cinema chair. Now in 3D! The problem is that this becomes a formula. When a formula works, it gets abused, and the work becomes abusively formulaic. There's very little variation on what happens movie to movie. Towers topple down, the Chrysler building usually goes at some distinct point due to its distinctive point. Sometimes our heroes are trapped in the buildings, but always get out okay because Spider-Man or Optimus Prime saves them. In fact, wreck your brains! For a building-smashing blockbuster where people we genuinely care about are trapped beneath millions of tons of masonry and suffocate or bleed to death due to internal injuries. This is never shown because we have to survive our nightmares for the movie to sell. Even though the city in Independence Day gets blown up behind Vivica Fox, she still escapes into the indestructible protective confines of a fireproof utility closet, along with the kids and family dog. Even the 2006 film World Trade Center, the real-life destruction of which gave the world a burning desire to see superheroes in action, follows two men who really did survive the disaster. We don't want to see the awful consequences, but we do want the spectacle. To this end, we are asked not to think about the tens of thousands of people who almost certainly do die when General Zod tears the city down around them. Even worse, how Superman plows through buildings mid-fight, using the scenery as a weapon to get the upper hand. Spectacular, yes, although less so on the sixth round and with the unspoken collateral damage toll rising a grim sacrifice for our entertainment. But it's nowhere near as clean-cut as action bad, drama good. The actual fights, especially with Ursa, I don't care that her given name was Feora, that's right, that was Ursa. I thought for the first time that I was seeing martial arts as eye-popping as in The Matrix. Now obviously since that time we've had the Bourne trilogy, the new Bond, Tony Jaa, Haywire and the Raid. But there's still something to be said for their rarely combined superhuman speed and strength with martial arts. And this was one of those rare times it was pulled off to dazzling effect. But the core of the movie wasn't fighting at all. It was the quiet moments between Clark and his adoptive parents. Little exchanges like the conversation through the cupboard door as young Kent developed his alarming superhearing, X-ray and heat vision. That was wonderful. A career high for Superman as far as I'm concerned. Laden with more truth and thought and sensitivity than feels natural in a Zack Snyder film. 
the dialogue with Costner, the conflict within, the hiding, the pretense of mundanity, the bleached out slightly too bright colour scheme, all serving to highlight this strange and literally alien world to the man from Krypton. The point where Kal-El found himself with no choice but to murder Zod really affected me. Cavill's scream at this point, the analogue of the rage experienced at the end of the Donner film, after failing to save Lois's life, felt like a man losing part of his soul for a cause. Maybe too great a thing to give in the name of protecting people, but a requirement all too often laid heavily upon the shoulders of those who do. It was doubly tragic as he was wiping out the last of his species in the same fatal stroke. This is, however, something that was swept under the rug very quickly for a swift resolution. It must be followed up on in film two. But the crowning moment was the first takeoff and flight for me. This was supposed to be Christopher Reeves standing at the back of the Fortress of Solitude before earnestly leaping into space to glide on wires slowly across the screen. Back then they believed a man could fly. I didn't, and I don't now. Superman Returns, packed with millennial rubber, convinced me that a CGI man could hang in CGI air. But like the Donner Superman, its charms lay elsewhere. This time, when Clark flung himself skyward, my heart leapt into my throat. A tear trickled down my cheek. He hurtled through canyons and over rivers with tangible force and velocity, Cavill himself reacting with amazement and relief at finally being able to cut loose and break the bonds of gravity that had anchored him to this grey little planet for 33 years. Not only could he fly at that point, but I could too. concludes our Superman discussion. Hope you enjoyed it, folks. Many huge thanks to my guests, Sharon Shaw. Thank you for having me. Neil Taylor. I will find him! I will find him! Actually, you know what? We've said that too much. You know what it should be? What? Neil before Zod! <laughs> and Jerome McIntosh. Good day, sir. We will be back soon with Batman. Hancock is still my favourite Superman film, but like The Amazing Spider-Man, with the cumbersome retold origin out of the way, the path is now set for an excellent sequel that could well trump all the previous instalments. I'm optimistic. I'm looking forward to seeing how high this one can fly.